everyone. This is Sam. And this is Corrine, and we are two Onk Ducks. This week's episode, we are going to be focusing on cholangiocarcinomas, as well as a little bit of gallbladder cancers. We're going to go over the important details on the classification of these types of cancers, how we diagnose them, and how we treat both local and advanced cholangiocarcinomas. Yes. So to start us off, how are biliary cancers classified and what are the risk factors? So there's three classifications of cholangiocarcinomas. The first one's called intrahepatic or within the liver. And so 78% of these tumors are mass forming within the liver parenchyma. There's also periductal infiltrating tumors and infiltrating tumors along the bile ducts and the portal tracts. These can be very sneaky and tricky tumors. Um, Sometimes they actually are diagnosed as tumors of unknown primary. Um, And so it's very important to have this on our radar and our differential diagnosis when we're thinking about diseases. There's also extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, so that's outside the liver within the common bile duct and the distal bile duct system, and also gallbladder carcinomas. And so those can be found incidentally, or they can be found by masses within the gallbladder. Our risk factors for these types of cancers are having gallstones, a porcelain gallbladder, gallbladder polyps, salmonella infections, liver fluke infections in the world, hepatitis B and C infections, as well as inheritable syndromes such as Lynch syndrome and primary sclerosing cholangitis. So PSC holds a 10 to 15% risk lifetime of getting cholangial carcinoma and a 2% risk of having gallbladder carcinoma. So that's very important and very testable to have in your vignettes as a buzzword. Absolutely. And patients with primary sclerosis and cholangitis end up needing MRCPs or surveillance of some form for gallbladder cancer because of the increased risk. And so what are the symptoms of cholangial carcinoma? They can be very vague, but they can include things like right upper quadrant abdominal pain where that um, bile system is. They can present with obstructive jaundice, so that's that yellow sclera, pale stools, dark urine, and puritis. You can have symptoms of liver dysfunction, so think about ascites, splenomegaly, um, as well as the other uh, symptoms that we think of with liver dysfunction. In gallbladder cancer, you can sometimes find this as an incidental finding after a cholecystectomy, and the treatment is resection at the time of surgery. So you, the surgeon will proceed with a cholecystectomy as well as a hepatic resection and then lymph node and bile duct excisions as well. So if some surgeon gets in there and they see and they're trained um, and they see what they suspect to be gallbladder cancer, everything comes out at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. Patients with extra hepatic cholangio are more likely to have the jaundice, weight loss, and then those that have intrahepatic less likely to have jaundice based on the location. And so how do we make the diagnosis of cholangiocarcinoma? So it's very important to have very good bile duct imaging. So we need to be thinking about multi-phase contrast-enhanced CT scans or MRIs to get a close look at that area. We need to have a CT of the chest to complete our staging. And sometimes we do a PET scan, but it's not always indicated. Like I mentioned before, biopsies can be a little bit tricky, and sometimes this can look like a cancer of unknown primary or a poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma. So you need to sometimes utilize the pathology as well as the radiographic evidence in order to make this diagnosis. We can do biopsies of the lesions through percutaneous liver biopsy or an EUS to biopsy suspicious lymph nodes nearby, or we can even do ERCP to give us some brushings of the bile duct system. 
We do have a tumor marker associated with cholangiocarcinoma, and that is CA99, that can sometimes help us look one way or another um, trying to diagnose this cancer. Definitely. And you might remember CA99 also being elevated in pancreatic cancer. And so how do we treat resectable intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma? Our goal for resectable intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma is great surgical resection when possible. Although this is only possible in about 20 to 25% of cases at the time of diagnosis. Positive margins are associated with a worse prognosis in this disease, and the feasibility of resection depends on the future liver remnant. So think back to our HCC episode. We need to have 25% of the liver left in a healthy liver or 40% of the liver left in a cirrhotic liver. So as long as we take out the tumor, but we leave enough liver behind to function, that is our goal. We need, or we can think about portal vein embolization, um, which can induce liver hypertrophy of the future remnant prior to our surgical resections as well. Lymph nodes in this type of disease, we need to at least get six lymph nodes out to be examined for lymph node involvement. And if intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma recurs, we do consider re-resection to get an R0 or local therapy, which both have been shown to have overall benefit in the case of recurrence. Definitely. And so do we use any adjuvant therapy after surgery? We do. So in the case of an R0, R1, or node-positive intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, we do offer systemic adjuvant therapy. And this recommended to use capecitabine, so that oral pill of 5-FU. We give it twice a day, 14 days on, one week off, and we recommend that for eight cycles total. This recommendation is based on the phase three bill cap um, study, which was published in the Lancet in 2019. And this trial is actually a negative trial in that the overall survival did not reach its statistical significance in the intent to treat analysis, but the results were very compelling and clinically relevant. So it became the standard of care. The results of this trial was a median overall survival of 53 months if you had eight cycles of capecitabine adjuvantly versus 36 months in the observation group. Median recurrence-free survival was also longer in the capecitabine group at 24 and a half months versus 17 and a half months. And a new update of this trial in 2022 did actually confirm that benefit. So it is statistically significant now, but when we actually adapted this into our practice, it was truly a negative trial. So I use this always as an example as negative trials still provide us benefit in oncology. Definitely. And so how do we treat unresectable intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma? So if the intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma is unresectable at time of diagnosis, we can consider radiation plus 5-FU. We can also consider local regional therapies, whether it be radiation or arterial-directed therapies, and we always need to consider good systemic therapy. If metastatic disease is diagnosed or upfront, systemic therapy or clinical trials is our preferred option, and we'll go into that a little bit detail um, up next. And then what about extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma? How do we treat this? So we treat extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma very similar to intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. So if the disease is resectable, resection followed by adjuvant capecitabine and close surveillance is our option. 
And distal cholangeal carcinoma, the surgery is different. So we're not talking liver resection, but we are talking about a Whipple procedure. So that's our pancreatic duodenectomy, as well as a lymphadenectomy. So we're taking out a lot of anatomy and rewiring it. If found unresectable, we consider biliary drainage, and then we also consider systemic therapies similar to intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. And then what systemic therapies do we use in the unresectable and metastatic settings? Historically, gemcitabine plus cisplatin is our first-line therapy. This is based on the ABC02 trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2010. What this trial compared was single-agent gemcitabine to gemcitabine plus cisplatin, and what the results showed is that the combination provided longer median overall survival of 11.7 months versus 8.1 months of gem alone, and a longer median progression-free survival of 8 months versus 5 months um, when you looked at gem alone. Now, I'll fast forward to 2022, our preferred regimen actually is gemcitabine cisplatin plus dervalumab, so chemo plus immunotherapy. And this is based on the phase three Topash trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2022. And the results of this trial show that the addition of dervalumab immunotherapy to the RD standard combination gemcitabine plus cisplatin resulted in improved median overall survival, median progression-free survival, as well as response rates. Our subsequent line therapy in the systemic setting is Fulfox. I think that'll be the one that you guys get tested on. There are additional systemic options, um, but I think Fulfox will be what you guys get, get um, tested on. Yeah, I think remembering gemcitabine cisplatin, and you might remember that regimen is what is used in first-line metastatic bladder cancer, um, as well as neoadjuvant. But in this setting in cholangiocarcinoma, now it's also combined with immunotherapy in the form of dervalumab. So remember that triplet combination in the first line setting. And so are there any targeted therapies for metastatic cholangiocarcinoma? Yes, there are. So molecular testing is extremely important and should be sent on every single patient diagnosed with metastatic or advanced cholangiocarcinoma. The big mutations that we need to be aware of and the highly testable ones for your board's day is FGFR fusions. Those are found in about 20% of cholangiocarcinomas, and the targeted therapies for that are pemigatinib and futigbatinib. HER2 overexpression can be seen in 15 to 20% of cases, and we utilize combination trastuzumab plus pertuzumab. IDH1 mutations can be seen in 13% of cases. And we utilize a targeted agent, ivocytinib. BRAF V600E mutations can be found. So we use that combination, dibrafenib plus trametinib that we've heard about before. MSI high or deficient mismatch repair can be seen at about 2%. And we utilize pembrolizumab. NTRAC fusions, like we've heard in all solid tumors, we can utilize entrectinib or larotrectinib. And sometimes we see RET mutations, which we can use selpercatinib. Yeah, I think knowing that FGFR, because it does show up in 20% of patients, is really important. So remember pemigatinib and tibatinib. Um, and remember the toxicities for those that in some, a lot of patients need eye exams at baseline. Um, it can increase your phosphorus. Um, we might have talked about this in our bladder cancer episode as well. And it can elevate your uh, bilirubin. And so definitely know those key toxicities because they like to test on that. Um, and so that was a really great overview, Sam. What are our key takeaways? 
I think our key takeaways are one of the most important risk factors that you guys need to know about walking into test day is PSC. So primary sclerosing cholangitis. Again, this holds a 10 to 15% lifetime risk of getting cholangiocarcinoma and a 2% lifetime risk of getting a gallbladder cancer. If there's resectable disease, our primary treatment options are surgery, good surgery up front, followed by adjuvant capecitabine, which has been shown to improve overall survival. In the metastatic setting, our new first-line treatment option is gemcitabine plus cisplatin plus dervalumab. If the boards are not completely up to date with the new 2022 approval, gemcitabine plus cisplatin is better than gemcitabine alone if a patient's able to tolerate it. And remember back to all of our other episodes, they need to be able to tolerate cisplatin. Subsequent line therapy in the metastatic setting is full FOX. So I always say this one in doubt on a GI question. If you don't know, guess full FOX. And then also be cognizant of the targeted therapies. These are highly testable. So we need to know about the FGFR fusions. We treat that with pemigatinib or futibatinib, HER2 overexpression, which we treat with trastuzumab plus pertuzumab, IDH1 mutations, which we treat with ivocidinib. And MSI high or deficient mismatch repair tumors, which we always think about immunotherapy with pembrolizumab. Definitely. Yeah. Commit to memory that adjuvant capcitabine because that's the only listed category one. Um, and as I mentioned and Sam mentioned, gemcitabine, cisplatin, dervalumab for first-line metastatic. And so that was a great overview. So as always, thank you for listening. Good luck with your studying. And please feel free to reach out to us with corrections or comments on our Instagram or Twitter. Have a great week, guys.